Welcome back to Season 2 of Data Discourse. I'm your host, John Heiderscheidt. This is a podcast presented by AFCOM. Uh, we're very fortunate to have Michael Recton of Baker & McKenzie with us today. Mike is a partner at the, global law, at the global law firm. He's got more than 20 years of real estate law experience. He understands the complex technical and operational issues in the data center sector and can help clients navigate the unique attributes, risks, concerns, and technology involved in these transactions. Uh, he represents a host of different clients, uh, very high profile, Fortune 500, Fortune 100, uh, folks who are private investment groups. And he's agreed to give us 20 minutes of his time to uh, talk about some legal issues in the data center world. So, Mike, say hi. Hi, everybody. Uh, Michael Recton from uh, Baker McKenzie. I'm actually a real estate partner here and uh, with a specialty in, in data centers, which I've been really focusing on for the past seven or eight years, and it's uh, most of my practice these days. Now, I have a couple of uh, pre-recorded questions for you, but we were talking yesterday doing a little bit of preview work for the episode. You actually did a pretty interesting risk assessment over of uh, a number of different European countries for a data center client that was trying to understand uh, the risks of government intrusion into the data that's stored. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, actually still kind of working on it uh, now. It started last summer, and it's a, uh, it's a hyperscale cloud provider uh, who wants to, over the next few years, catch up to Amazon Web Services in providing cloud services to both individuals but primarily businesses. And so they intend on rolling out over Europe and Asia uh, large, large, large data centers and have a budget of about $100 billion over the next 10 years to spend on these data centers. So Holy cow. They had our, yeah, yeah. Really, those numbers are pretty eye-popping. Uh, but in order to catch up to Amazon Web Services, you need to be willing to spend that kind of money. Uh, so what they did is they had us look at, we're now up to 37 different jurisdictions uh, across Europe, Asia, and a little bit of South America, where they want to build data centers, but they want to strategically do so in such a way that they can provide uh, services to the uh, the people that live in these country, that country that they'll be in, but also the kind of surrounding countries, and and really wanted to understand what the ramifications were of of building those data centers in those countries, because one of their biggest concerns is uh, the ability of the government to be able to intercept communications within their data centers and redirect that traffic to the government. So if, for example, you have a terrorist cell that is uh, using the services of this uh, client of ours, they would want to be able to intercept that communication. And we found that, interestingly, um, there's varying levels of uh, thresholds which have to be met before a government can actually do that. So in some of the Scandinavian countries, for example, the bar is pretty high, so you have to show a lot of due cause for being able to do it, and in some instances, an actual potential emergency uh, or catastrophic event, a terrorist event, for example, might result if they don't have that access. But then in other countries, it's as easy as some arm of the government is saying, nope, we want to install, install in your data center some equipment that will redirect uh, uh, emails to us with a very low threshold. So it was very interesting where we had to risk rank all of these 37 different jurisdictions into four different bands. And uh, this probably won't surprise many people uh, who are listening to the podcast, but, uh, but Russia ended up uh, dead last, uh, along with Israel, which was interesting because Israel has such security concerns that they have 
broad abilities to be able to install this type of equipment into uh, into data centers. So that was sort of one of the questions that we we were tasked with. There were about seven or eight total questions, and and another interesting one was uh, the the data center network they were going to be creating. Uh, was really an internal network to them where they would build like one large mother data center in a country and then have sort of satellite data centers, but they would only interact with each other so that people like you and I couldn't actually access, get access into that data center. We would use our internet service provider to get to a, a node or a pop someplace and then ultimately um, it would and it would finally get to the backbone of this uh, inter this uh, this large tech company and then ultimately end up in their sort of internal network of data centers. And so they were very concerned about also being considered an electronic communication service or an electronic communication network in these different countries. Because once you achieve that status, the ability to then have the government intercept is heightened quite a bit and also just the regulations around what you can do in your data centers. So their whole goal was really to be as off the grid as possible, despite spending $100 billion over the next 10 years on data centers. So it was really kind of a hard thing for them to, to, to manage. But uh, they, have, they have a plan to roll these things out. And uh, I think that everybody who's listening to the podcast will see a lot more uh, news highlights about this over the next few years, but a fascinating project to work on and something that's really ongoing here at uh, Baker McKenzie. Really interesting to get the inside scoop on that and to hear about a little bit of news before it's going to break. Um, you know, I, I don't right. imagine that there's too many objections from a company like that saying, okay, we want to be as helpful and forthright as possible in, in preventing bad incidents where we can. But what kind of specific language goes into their SLAs or how do you caution against overreach by these jurisdictions? I'm sure that was part of your research. Yeah, no, it was really interesting because a lot of this was a case of first impression in some of these like smaller European countries where they just had not been presented with uh, with this fact scenario. And so we have offices in all these different countries. So I was interfacing with the attorneys who lived in Hungary, for example, and saying, here's the fact pattern. And they would look at it and say, we actually haven't seen this before, so we're not completely sure how to respond. And the best way to really get this information is for us to go to the government and ask them these questions. But that's kind of the last thing that this client wanted uh, wanted them to do because it would tip the hand that they would be doing something like this. So it was sort of a, an artful thing to kind of kind of dance around. Uh, but this, the whole notion of trying to keep everything internal and really not having the outside world being able to access it was the way in which they were going to guard against having to really involve the government. But to your point about wanting to be cooperative, yeah, the company itself is not uncooperative. I think it's just, it's sort of like the, uh, the Apple iPhones and having to build in kind of the backdoor entry for uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, police forces, FBI, and local authorities to be able to get in. And Apple's resistance to doing that, it's sort of the hallmark, I think, of some of these major tech companies that they really value your privacy and the security of their devices and, and networks and things. So they they will resist this as much as they can unless they're compelled to do so. Well, and that's an interesting point because a lot of these groups, no matter where they are or, or um, what their particular project is, particularly when they have end customers, a lot of them are promising privacy to their end customers too. So I, what are the right. natural consequences here? I'm a customer of um, a managed service provider and it can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be in Europe, it can be anywhere. 
Um, I have a service level agreement with them. The service level agreement says that, in short, um, the information that I exchange on this network or through their services is going to be private to me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what kind of, are, do you experience any situations where the customer of the company comes to you and says, whoa, you've gone too far? And, and what do you have to do to sort of manage that claim? Yeah, I mean, I, so so that was, that's a classic kind of data breach type situation, and, and you know, I have colleagues that deal with that stuff all the time, and then you know, the losses that you suffer from that are are huge and ongoing, and you have a lot of customers that are understandably uh, upset, and so you look for somebody to kind of push that liability off on to the extent you can. So you you have insurance companies that might cover some of it if you have the proper insurance coverage, and then you're looking at the provider and kind of where where the leak. Or the breach happened, and you know it's one of the reasons probably to use managed services providers and to frankly put your things into into a cloud environment is because uh, they do a much better job than I think enterprises do of safeguarding uh, that information because you know if you're in the Amazon cloud or the Microsoft cloud, they're complete professionals at keeping those things locked down and keeping people out of that. Um, but then if you do have a breach situation, you know, oftentimes the contracts are very, very uh, not helpful to the customer as to what kind of liability. So there's an exclusion of consequential damages. There's a cap on liability that's often sort of what you paid to the provider in the first instance. So they're really not a good source. And frankly, if you're a very large enterprise and you have a data breach and it's going to cost you $100 million dollars, uh, and if you have a small managed services provider, you'll bankrupt them with any kind of lawsuit. So, so you just—it's not a great situation to be in. And so, the way I counsel my clients is try to get as much as you can in these in these agreements, and then have a, a creditworthy entity sign it. So, if you have Microsoft standing behind a managed services agreement to be in their cloud, well, then you have a creditworthy entity that's going to be there. But if you have you know, John and Mike's house of managed services, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get, get too far. So you, you want to know who you're sort of getting in bed with, understand the contracts, but then also understand, you know, the likelihood of actually recovering all that is, is pretty remote because there are consequential damages. Courts aren't very favorable to, to grant those or enforce provisions like that. And so do your due diligence and get, and get your, get your act in order, you know, as far as your data center, uh, set up in your architecture and what's in the cloud and have that all sort of locked down with really good service providers. That's always my best uh, advice to them. Okay, I want to stick with uh, the jurisdiction diligence you did in uh, Europe just for two more minutes here and then move into a couple other questions about some stuff that happened last year in 2017 in the U.S. sector. Um, you know, as you're well aware, the Supreme Court of the United States will not give advisory opinions. Um, when you were working with the jurisdictions, the different ones, were they willing to give advisory opinions to the extent you could get them from, you know, obviously it wouldn't come from a Supreme Court, but maybe a regulatory agency? Um, and, and if so, were they, were they helpful to you to the extent you could get them without tipping your customer's hand? Right. So, so there. So, if you get into a jurisdiction like Germany, for example, which is actually, you know, obviously a very large country and has quite a bit of data center presence and a lot sure. of tech companies there. Yeah. So, there actually were instances where this company really didn't have to do much because, uh, you know, other companies had led the way and received uh, those kind of, uh, not necessarily, they're definitely not rulings, but sort of advice from these different arms of the government. 
you know, the the German equivalent of the FCC, for example, saying, yeah, if you're if this is a completely internal network, and you know you're not allowing customers to access this in any way through some kind of cloud on ramp or or some type of pop within the actual data center, then no, we won't consider you an electronic communication service or network, and therefore the requirements uh, to uh, our requirements on us as the government to be able to install this intercept equipment is very very high. So there they were sort of able to ride the tails, the coattails of other tech companies who had the same issues. But then again, you get into the smaller jurisdictions like a Hungary or something where, you know, only four or five million people live there. And this is the first time anybody's come up with this. Uh, the client was really wanting to understand from our local lawyers what they thought and what they thought the reaction was, but were not willing in any case to go to the government directly, even on a no-name basis, because they felt that there's such a limited number of, of companies that could be asking these questions is that the, the governments would figure out pretty fast who it was. Yeah, sure. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, so turning back to the U.S., uh, 2017 was a very busy year in the data center industry here as well. Uh, big construction right. boom in the Texas area, Dallas, Fort Worth. We saw a lot of construction there. Northern Virginia continued to expand, but the the title i would say the number one the leading headline of 2017 in the u.s was MA mergers and acquisitions saw a ton of right. different groups that i don't have to prattle off to you here um join forces uh peak 10 via west to to name one that is now flexential they just announced that today um mm -hmm. so you've counseled folks who are going through mergers and acquisitions generally and, and now spending almost a decade exclusively in the data center space, um, probably even more so. Um, how does the M&A process work at a high level for companies like that when a Peak 10 and Avaya combine or when DRT and DuPont combine or right. anything like that? From the lawyer's perspective, from the from counsel's perspective, what are some of the pitfalls? What are you trying to get through? And what are some of the important documents in that process? Yeah, no, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is, is these are all very competitive processes. And so I have been, I have represented a couple of different potential bidders on some of these recent ones. And, you know, the list of bidders is, you know, used to be probably it was Digital Realty Trust and Equinex because they're the only ones who could really pull this thing off. But now, it's, you know, those people, but another seven or eight data center operators, and then another five private equity firms on top of it. So, uh, unfortunately, my particular client has been boxed out of the last two. And, and part of that was because they were interested only in certain of the assets of the different um, companies that were for sale and weren't really willing to buy the whole thing as an ongoing concern. Whereas you still have the digitals and the equinexes who can more easily do that because the real estate investment trust and they're happy to sort of buy these things in their entirety and let them continue to run and then maybe merge them into their operations at some point. So it's a, it's a very competitive process. It's very compressed. Uh, you're not, you know, you, you definitely don't know whether you're going to win or not. And, and one I was involved in in December uh, was very interesting because we were really trying to buy some of the assets, but not all of the assets, as, as I mentioned before, and trying to pivot it into more of a real estate type transaction but got resistance and resistance, and finally we had to drop out. But one of the very interesting things that kind of came out of that is the advent of representations and warranties insurance for these types of transactions. 
so that uh, the due diligence on the assets and the company itself becomes a lot more limited and instead what you end up getting as a, as a buyer is a representations and warranties insurance policy for some portion of the purchase price and in order for that to happen the insurance company has to do its own due diligence on the company sort of almost in lieu of yours you can do yours if you want but you're really backstopped by that insurance policy because once you close uh, the seller distributes their proceeds and, and, and moves on and is not going to be liable under the uh, the contract for lingering liability for liability that survives the closing, except for some very, very bad things like fraud and, and you know, intentional misconduct type type things. So that was an interesting thing to go through, but it does have the effect of compressing the time even more because in the, the olden days, you'd have 30 to 45 days to kick the tires and, and look at the different uh, assets there, get estoppel certificates, get title insurance, all this other jazz. And now that is not really part of the process. It's, it's more who's going to pay us the most amount of money and let's get this thing sold as quickly as possible. Sure. Um, you're listening to Data Discourse, a podcast presented by AFCOM. I'm your host, John Heiderscheidt. AFCOM serves individuals and organizations that design, build, operate, support, and manage data centers and IT infrastructure around the world with industry-leading insights, education, tools, and professional networking. Founded in 1980 and originally as the Association for Computer Operations Management, the name AFCOM remains in support of its heritage and its continued relevance and passion in serving the data center and IT infrastructure industry. If you're interested in learning more about membership or uh, educational content opportunities or networking opportunities, visit us at AFCOM.com and check out the Contact Us uh, section. Mike, we're very, very glad to have you here today. If you're just uh, fast forwarding a little bit, we've got Mike Recton of the global law firm Baker & McKenzie talking about some issues in European data centers and U.S. data centers. Uh, coming up towards the close of the interview, we've got a couple more minutes left. You know, Mike, I had sent you probably seven or eight questions that I thought we were going to quiz you on, but I think we're going to have to end it around three. So we're talking about, <clears throat> you know, what's going on in Europe and mergers and acquisitions and really great topics, but probably not topics that a huge subsect of the industry is in, involved in on a day-to-day -day basis. So I wanted to talk about one thing that I think uh, touches on virtually everybody, whether you're on the IT side, the infrastructure side. Um, Non-disclosure agreements. Um, any tips or advice or explanation for common things to look for in a non-disclosure agreement that should be there, shouldn't be there in terms of should they last a year, should they last five years? Um, what situations can you be compelled to share information that's under an NDA? Just kind of generally your experience with those documents and how well they hold up in terms of enforceability. Sure, sure. So, yeah, these things are, are used in every single transaction I work on, obviously. And, and all, all kind of enterprises and all data center companies have their own forms of these things. And they, they are getting more and more aggressive over time. And if you really read them closely, kind of the consequences of not complying with them can be pretty draconian. So I encourage everybody who's listening to this to uh, read it closely and, and have your counsel, whether it's inside counsel or outside counsel, take a look at it because they are they are negotiable. Uh, you know, at, at, at some level, I, when I negotiate them, I really try to look for the things that are the most egregious. Uh, but John, as to your question about survivability, so you have them, they have a term which is usually related to the transaction they're involved in. So if you have a lease transaction, a wholesale lease transaction of, of a data center pod that's going to happen, then they will last for 
uh, until this lease is signed because then they kind of collapse into the lease themselves where there will be their, its own confidentiality provision, which is the equivalent of an NDA within the lease itself. And uh, they, they, uh, as far as the enforceability goes, it, it really, it really depends on what jurisdiction you're in. So, uh, if you're in a jurisdiction like, let's, for example, Texas, Texas is sort of a letter of the law jurisdiction, and if you sign this and you agree to it, uh, the judges in Texas are going to hold you to it. So, even if it's something that's a little bit far afield and maybe you shouldn't have agreed to it, uh, that's that's the way it's going to happen. But in, in more liberal jurisdictions like a California or an Illinois. If they think that the uh, the documents themselves are sort of over the line, they will be less likely to try to enforce the harsh provisions uh, of a non-disclosure agreement. But I will say also that you know these major tech companies are very serious when it comes to this because if they are going to be disclosing to you sort of like peeking behind the curtain, seeing what their data center architecture looks like or what their server setups are like, they care a lot about this, and that's why they're really loath in general just to sort of bring other vendors into things. So. Uh, understand that with the big, big tech companies, uh, the, the notion of, of negotiating much is kind of thrown out the window. So if you're going to be at wanting them to be in your data center, there's a good chance you're going to have to uh, uh, agree to their NDA and then make sure all your service providers agree to the NDA to the extent you have to disclose things to your service providers. But uh, treat it as a very serious document. I think often they're sort of thrown around as not a big deal. but uh, they become much more uh, serious, I think, as time has gone on and a, a lot more aggressive. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your viewpoints on these topics. Uh, I can say personally that uh, I've worked with Mike a little bit here over the past few years, and there's no better representation for folks uh, who need legal counsel in the data center industry. So, Mike, if uh, people are listening and they think, Boy, this is somebody I may want to talk to about any number of legal issues in the data center that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. How could they get a hold of you? Sure. So I think that uh, you know, it best thing would be to call me, or two things, obviously call or, or email. So my, my uh, cell phone number, which is a good number, is 312-752-8085. Uh, my last name is spelled R-E-C-H-T-I-N. And it's michael.recton at bakermckenzie.com. And it's B-A-K-E-R-M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. -E. So thank you, John. It's been, it's been great working with you two over the last few years. And this is a great uh, forum. I appreciate having the chance to be on it. We're very glad you came by and shared some of your insights into the industry, particularly the legal challenges that are out there. Uh, thanks for coming on, folks. You've been listening to the first episode of Season 2 of Data Discourse, a podcast presented by AFCOM. We'll be with you next time.